Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A gracious and glorious Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have not only given us bread for our bellies, but bread for our very souls. And Lord, we pray that we not merely feed the physical in our lives, but more importantly, Lord, that we would live not merely by the bread that feeds our, our tummies, but, Lord, that we would live on the bread that comes from you. That we would not live on bread alone, but we would live by every word that comes from your mouth, O Lord. Fill us, Lord, satisfy us to the deepest longings of our souls that we might be able to hold fast to the promises which you have declared. That we would hold fast to Christ through faith. Fill us with your Spirit, we pray, that we might be able to be satisfied only in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now the word, Lord, from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. This is God's holy, inerrant, life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For indeed you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. But you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Up to this point, we've looked at this passage in two major portions, dividing it into four parts. But so far, we've looked at the first part, where we looked at verse 10, and then verse 14 and 16 together. And we're focused at that portion looking at the gift that Philippians went and gave to be able to give to Paul. That here the church in Philippi was giving to Paul when no one else did. The great example of a church seeking to be able to serve gospel ministers, even though Paul was not popular. This church, this small church, was able to be able to help and support him. 
that here we saw the gospel partnership of being able to reach out and the connection from small little churches to be able to support the one big universal church. And then the second portion, as we looked at that famous verse, in contentment, Paul's perspective. In this disclaimer, as he sought to be able to show his contentment in Christ, that it is Christ who gives him strength, whether he is abounding or low, in any and every, all circumstances, he'd learned the, the, the secret of contentment. Now in this third part, we seek to be able to continue as we look now at Paul's second disclaimer, you might say. The center portion focused on the Philippian gifts, but yet Paul has these two portions where he needs to be able to go down and have some form of disclaimer. As he's mentioned, he's very thankful for the gift that they have given to them. Paul's expressed this gratitude to the Philippian church for their support and partnership in his ministry. He's acknowledged that when he had initially begun preaching the gospel in Macedonia, the Philippians were the only church who had actively participated in supporting him, both financially and also other aspects. But yet, despite facing challenges and opposition in Thessalonica, the Philippians once more had consistently sent help to meet Paul's needs. And Paul's words reflected this deep appreciation for their generosity in advancing the gospel. So now as Paul expresses this thanks, he, he wants to clarify what he's actually thankful for. Why is he thankful for this gift? He wants to clarify, although he's thankful for the gift, it's not the money that he seeks. That he's content in whatever situation, with or without this gift that was sent forth. So what is Paul actually thankful for? We see this in this passage, what Paul is actually thankful for. The first thing that we see that Paul is thankful for is Paul is thankful for cultivating fruit. Paul is thankful for cultivating fruit. Paul is thankful for this gift, not so much in the what it is, but more importantly, what it is able to accomplish. The fruit that it produces. Particularly the gospel fruit that it produces. See this at the verse of the beginning in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. It's important to understand that the Philippian church was not supporting Paul because he was merely a good guy, that they liked him, they liked his preaching. They were supporting him more because of what he was seeking to be able to do to be able to preach the true gospel. He was a gospel minister going out and seeking to be able to find this gospel fruit. But as he writes in the opening chapter of Romans chapter 1, as Paul writes Romans to be able to expand that he seeks to be able to carry this gospel message to the Gentiles even further than he has gone before, 
But in Romans chapter 1, he, he, he writes the church in Rome saying, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. That here he, he sees the gospel fruit of this harvest that is plentiful, abundant in these far-reaching places that no one has ever gone before. Or as he instructs young Titus, in Titus chapter 3, where he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent needs and not being unfruitful. Here he's instructing to this young pastor, and he, and he tells him that here your job as a pastor is to help people devote themselves to these good works. To be able to grow, to be able to produce this fruit. That there's fruit out there. And Paul, as a gospel minister, seeks to be able to see and reach and harvest this fruit. And Paul sees this gift that is given as a means to be able to carry out that gospel fruit. Again, we must be, make clear this distinction. Paul is not thankful for the money. He's thankful for the fruit which can come as a result of this gift. He's making this very, very clear. He wants to make it clear that he is there for the gospel fruit, not for the money. And so, too, there's a great warning that merely if we view the terms of church in merely just business, economical terms, economic terms, then we are merely forsaken. If we look merely at our budget as a sign of how fruitful the church is, then we're really going down the wrong track. Paul is certain that it's not merely the budget that's the important thing, it's the fruit that the budget produces that's the thing that is essential. Many churches might have a grand big budget. They're running a, an orchid, an orchard, but yet have no fruit at the end. Or their money is not used to be able to serve that, to be able to grow that people might See, that gospel fruit. And again, Paul is using very business-oriented language between the relationship between the Philippian church and Paul as the gospel minister. And he sees that here, the Philippians have given this gift to Paul to be able to go forth and produce, proclaim the gospel. But yet, who gets the credit for the fruit that is harvested? Well, obviously, all glory goes to God, but here, it, Paul says at the end of verse 7, it increases to your credit. The image is somewhat of an investment-type terminology. Here the Philippians are, distant from where Paul is proclaiming the gospel, and the Philippians are investing in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the gospel. And their investment in a different location is growing. See this connection again, because here they're, they're, 
they're giving to Christ and His church, and that investment spreads far and wide. Because they're all connected. Their union to Christ is a body of believers. Not merely because they're supporting Paul, because their gospel investment is serving the kingdom, Christ's kingdom. And again, the church is not like the world. In business, it's all about being cutthroat, brutal, that you can get ahead. Your sales are yours. Yet this is not the way of the church. We all here seek to be able to serve one purpose, to bring glory and honor to Christ and His church. And Paul points out here, as he's preaching the Gospels and sinners repent, it's counted towards the balance of the Philippians. That here they're on the same side. That here as heaven rejoices, church should rejoice as well, as we find out in Luke chapter 15. As Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. The image here is heaven is rejoicing because the kingdom of heaven is growing here on earth as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. And so to the church should rejoice when we see gospel fruit as we support other gospel ministers and that gospel fruit goes forth and bears fruit on the vine. And when, when we're talking about fruit, we're not merely talking about sinners that repent and enter the kingdom, although that is gospel fruit. I think we're talking about more of a, an, a deeper understanding of this gospel fruit. Not merely a sinner who repents and first enters the kingdom of heaven as they're born again, but any sinner who repents. The mature Christian who sees their sin, convicted of the sin through the Spirit, and, and run to the cross of Christ. The wayward child who returns parent who instructs their child in the Lord. The gospel fruit is far-reaching. And we pray that we would see fruit in this church. Fruit in our own lives. Fruit in lives around us. New fruit, old fruit. It would spread far and wide. Not only here in this building, but far across the globe. That this church would see this gospel economics as a way of furthering God's kingdom, not just here in this body, but across this nation and across this world. The second thing that we see that Paul is thankful for is he's thankful for the abounding generosity. He's thankful for the abounding generosity. That here I have received full payment, he says, and more. Verse 18, and I am well supplied. Again, here Paul is thankful for their generosity, the sacrifice that they have given. Here, this smallish, somewhat church, and yet they're able to be able to supply Paul and some. The word used here for more is often the term which is categorized of, of that which is overflowing, not merely just generosity to pay the tab in full, but overflowing with generosity. 
the baskets that are left over after feeding the 4,000 and 5,000. Paul used the same word to be able to describe their gift in times of poverty in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But as he writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. That in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That here, this this generosity from this, this Philippians, he's thankful for this heart of thankfulness, this generosity which is about them. As he continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and Paul writes that he who supplies seed to the sower and the bread of for food will supply a multitude, multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That you will be enriched in every way for the generous in every way. Which uh, through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Here this overflowing is not merely that Paul is thankful then just for the Philippian church, but he's also thankful for God. It's not merely just supplying the needs to the saints, but this overflowing which gives praise and thanks to God. But Paul focuses on the church in Philippi and shows their generosity, but it goes above and beyond. Their abundance. Actually, this, this term used to speak of this overflowing is actually used of what God's grace is towards us. But just earlier in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, and, this, and God is able to make all grace abound in you. And so having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that you may abound in every good work. That God's grace abounds in us, and therefore that's the size and scope of our generosity of grace to others. That they are generous because they, sh- they understand that God has been generous towards them. That they have received the greatest gift. Once people understand this grace, then they abound in thanksgiving and praise. What comes out of the Christian is this abounding abundance of thanksgiving and praise. And one way of this, this happens is through giving. And so this is why it's an element of worship. It's not merely just an aspect in which we try to be able to collect funds. But it's an aspect and element of our worship service which the people who have received God's abundant thanksgiving and grace 
Now bring forth this abundance of praise and adoration to God. Although within Reformed circles, particularly within Scottish Presbyterianism, there's been this question about, is it an element of worship or not? Mainly because, what aspect is it prescribed by God? If every element of worship should be regulated by God's Word, where does God instruct us to be able to give during our parts of worship? That's why in the Directory of Public Worship, it's not really mentioned. Only one sentence after the, uh, the Lord's Supper says, the collection for the poor is also to be ordered but no part of the public worship is thereby hindered. So here they see the giving of an aspect, but it shouldn't overtake. But particularly, this was just a small slither of that view, widely accepted as a part of worship, as our directory for worship says, that the Holy Scriptures teach that God is the owner of all persons and all things, and that we are but stewards of both life and possessions. That God's ownership and our stewardship should be acknowledged. That this acknowledgement should take the form in part of giving at least a tithe of our income and other portions, other offerings to the work of the Lord through the church of Jesus Christ. Thus, worshiping the Lord with our possessions. And that the remainder should be used to what becomes of Christians. So here they, they clearly define that here... This is an act of worship, bringing forth our tithes and our offerings for the work of the Lord through the church of Christ. All of our money should be used for the furthering of God's kingdom and His glory, what becomes of Christians. But specifically, there's an aspect of a tenth or a tithe in which we bring forth these offerings, giving glory to God. It continues and says that it's both a privilege and a duty plainly enjoyed in the Bible, enjoined in the Bible to make regular, weekly, systematic and offerings for the support of religion and for the propagation of the gospel in our own and foreign lands and for the relief of the poor. This should be done as an exercise of grace and an act of worship. Such time during the service as may deemed expedient by the session. Here this offering is, is such a it describes it as a privilege and a duty. Those things often are held in opposition to one another. We might pay our taxes as duty, but we would rarely do it with privilege, see it as an honor, but yet when we bring our tithes, this is exactly what we are doing. That once we understand that principle that Paul lays out in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we give because we have been given to. We show this abundance of generosity because we have been shown abundance of grace. That it comes from the heart. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul points out the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, God loves a cheerful giver. That here Paul points it out, particularly it's about the heart of the giver. That everyone should give, but specifically what is upon his heart. 
And so we must understand here, Paul is thankful for the heart of the Philippians. In their abundance of their gift, again, not highlighting the gift itself, but where the gift comes from, and directing his praise and adoration to God through their gift. And lastly, we see Paul is thankful for this fragrant offering. He is thankful for their offering that is fragrant. You see this at the end of verse 18, this fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And what we see, in contrast to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, there's a significant contrast that is very apparent. You can spend a lot of time looking and understanding this, but in the Old Offerings were generally made to be able to approach God. You needed to make an offering that you might be able to draw near to God. Whereas in the new, offerings are made because God has approached us. Even in the old, I think you see this principle is God makes a way for the people to be able to approach Him through these offerings. But particularly in the new, we approach God we offer to God because He has first approached us. And Paul says three things about their gift as this fragrant offering, this sacrifice that they have made. The first thing he highlights is their fragrant offering. This phrase specifically is referenced to Leviticus chapter 1. Verse 9, which reads, But the entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn, burn it, all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering that is pleasing aroma to the Lord. But here, specifically in Leviticus chapter 1, it highlights the act of what is a burnt offering. This voluntary act, which expresses devotion, thanksgiving, and atonement for sin, is symbolized by the total surrender and dedication to God. That the burnt offering is, stands alone because it is one of the only offerings that all of it is consumed. All of it is given to God. Again in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And Aaron's sons and priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire and the altar. But its entrails and its Legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as he burnt offering, a food offering that is pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is one of a whole offering. No portion is left. When we think about Paul using this terminology in, in giving, giving towards the gospel, giving out a generosity, We hardly ever think of that when we think of our giving, our offerings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. More specifically, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
And here this is particularly applied to this gift that Philippians have given. This offering, this fragrant offering, and yet death is absent in this. Because Christ has died, it changes the scope of the offering. No longer we need to give all of ourselves our whole life in the sense that death is there apparent. Christ has died and now we give all of our lives as living. This is exactly what Paul points out in Romans chapter 12. That as he appeals to the brothers and sisters in Christ by the mercy of God that they are therefore then to present themselves as a living sacrifice. Death is absent, but they live still as sacrifices, giving their all through this spiritual worship. The second part of this gift that Paul expresses is this sacrifice that is acceptable. Again, we need to understand this in Old Testament terms. This specific term is found in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 20 which reads, you shall not offer anything as, that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. Again, this act of worship is, is what based on what God has required which is acceptable. As Paul continues in Romans chapter 12, as you present your bodies as the living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or again, this offering that they make is one that is, is a sacrifice that is acceptable. Not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of their mind according to that which is the will of God, good, acceptable, and perfect. Douglas Moo says that we can present our bodies to the Lord as genuinely holy and acceptable sacrifice only if we do not conform to this world, but are transformed by the renewing of the mind. Finally, we see about this fragrant sacrifice and offering that it is pleasing to God. That this phrase underscores the idea that this sacrifice offered is not only acceptable, but it also brings delight and satisfaction to God. Again, it expresses what's expressed throughout all of Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. That they're brought forward, not only is the requirement of the sacrifice clearly spelled out in the Bible, but here God accepts that sacrifice and it's pleasing to Him because of the obedience and devotion. Andrew Murray says, the root of all virtue and grace, of all faith and acceptable worship, is that we know that we have nothing but what we receive and bow in deepest humility and wait upon God for it. Well, how do we do this? It's quite unnatural in our worship. God requires all worship. He deserves all worship. 
In Romans chapter 1, again, Paul points out that although people know God, they don't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Our natural tendency is to worship ourselves, glorify ourselves, give to ourselves, give thanks to us. But yeah, we're gracious that we find out that, as Andrew Murray points out, that if we want any type of faith or worship, we understand that there is nothing that we bring, only that which we have received. You see that physically, tangibly, as we think about God giving us blessings of this earth, of temporal blessings of finances and and wealth, that here that is received from God is a blessing from God. We cannot bring what we do not receive, and we do not receive because we only receive what God has given to us. So too in all of our worship, that's what we do. We, We seek because we have received grace, we have received mercy, therefore praise and thanksgiving goes forth. The author of Hebrews ends in chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Here again. It is God who equips us with everything good. That then we might be able to do His will. That He is the one working in us, which is then bringing what is pleasing in His sight. That we need to understand that we need help. We need help of every hour of every day. That if we got anything to give, it's only what has been given to us. You can only give what you have. And it does not start with work, it starts with worship. A.W. Tozer says, God wants worshipers before he wants workers. Indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the art of worship. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Words to him, we give thee but thy own. It says, we give thee but thy own, whatever the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. May we thy bounties thus, as stewards the true receive, and gladly as thou blessest us, to thee our first fruits give. We have nothing to give but our own, and nothing but what we have received from God. This is truly gospel economics. When we understand that all of this is seeking to be able to grow His kingdom and His glory, we focus not on the gift, but the giver. We focus on giving thanks and praise to Him and Him alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. A gracious and most merciful Father, we thank You so much that We seek to be able to understand the true essence of worship and not merely the outward what we see. Lord, we thank you for Paul as he continues to teach us through your Spirit, as he wrote these words to those 
the church in Philippi. As he highlighted that it's not the gift that he's thankful for, but he's thankful for the fruit that comes from that gift. He's thankful for the heart of the Philippians as they give thanks and praise to you. And he's thankful for the act of worship of their gift, which is pleasing to you. Help us to be able to understand these basic gospel economics as we carry them out in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.